0: A J j cut and this is the k cut a movie podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds this is andreas i run films fatale we're putting up our top 100 films of the 1930s at the start of march you could currently look at my um top 100 films of the 1940s which got put up earlier this month who else do i have with me
1: I'm Rachel, and I write a world cinema column for Films Fatale, and I'm also working on some other exciting projects with them, which we'll hear about soon.
2: Fantastic, James here, the American of the group. It's almost like you know Terry Gilliam's the American. The pythons, yeah. (laughs) But you know me, friendly neighborhood content creator. Hi producer release music under the alias boutique paul and i am one half of the prefer not to say podcast
0: fantastic and yes uh we, we're still waiting on your your stop motion animation of a uh, feet falling from the sky and all of that so i uh, gotta <laughs> get to it um just just don't make brothers grim or anything like that so um speaking of uh films like that oddly enough uh today's topic is stuff that We loved growing up as budding cinephiles. So like, you know, when you're growing up as budding cinephiles and you're trying to grab all of these different films and rediscover everything with a fresh new pair of eyes, like now you're discovering movies for real. But then you really study it as you get older and you get wiser about like what makes a good movie. And you look back to some of these titles and it's like, I don't love these anymore. So the first half of the episode is going to be related to this type of stuff where it's like, Movies you grew up with and were so dear to your heart, but now you just can't see them the same way because something about studying cinema just changed it for you. On the contrary, the second half of the episode is going to be stuff that you didn't really get growing up, but now that you are a cinephile and you read the cinematic language in a different way, you look at them now and you say, oh, wow, what was I missing? So it's the other way around. So growing out and growing in love... With all of these different films So let's get started with uh, James What's the film that you loved growing up The more you watched film, the more you studied it You kind of realize you're not really friends anymore
2: Yeah, so I had to think about that And I just thought back to high school days And all the movies I loved And the one I happened to pick That kind of got ruined After I really started to learn more about film Was 1999's The Boondock Saints Oh god uh-huh. <laughs> Okay. Yeah in high school I loved the movie, just the whole premise of it and you know all the stuff that happens in it. And then once I got a little bit older and out of high school and started to take film even more seriously and up until now I'm realizing that movie is so problematic. Yes, mainly that screenplay and just certain aspects of it that I'm just boggled that it was even possible to make something like that i mean i'm not gonna lie i'll still watch it if it's on but just the whole premise of murder <laughs> faith-based murder is not okay in any premise ever because it happens in real life in the form of terrorism but also i'm really amazed that they got away with willem dafoe playing detective smecker who's an openly gay but openly homophobic detective mm-hmm. like, it doesn't make sense and it's sad because there are some things that are done right with the movie as far as plot is concerned. It's just all these things weighing it down. I mean, not to mention, you know, Sean Patrick Flannery and Norman Reedus were perfect for those roles. And, you know, Willem Dafoe was obviously amazing in it. But yeah, looking back, I'm like, man, if only someone else could have made it and you know, or maybe someone like rewrite the screenplay so it's not as bad yeah i don't know it's just one of those things where it's like it's like it's almost embarrassing to say that that was one of my favorite movies because you know once i started to really take it seriously i'm like yeah that really is not a good film in the least i mean it had potential but and also i've heard troy duffy is a terrible person oh well that's not good
1: that wouldn't help
2: yeah there's a documentary called overnight about the making of the boondock saints and apparently he just showing he's a terrible person apparently he's also really anti-semitic too Oh, okay. Which also, doesn't help the themes of the movie at all. Yeah, and also based on like what I've seen like watching the film, he's such a dude bro in the way he put this story together. It's like, this film was made for men by a man who we should not be proud as a man. Yeah. But there's certain things that draw me to it, like the structure of the story was perfect, especially when all the crimes were committed and then you have Detective Smecker figuring it out after the fact and it does that whole it's non-linear it's like oh he's figuring it out and then it plays it as it happens mm-hmm. and i just thought that was so great as it shows that he's you know that he's this genius who can figure out any crime scene and then like i said the you know actress who play the brothers, super underrated i mean i'm kind of glad norman reedus got a really big break on the walking dead because he's a really good actor mm-hmm. but other than that it's just you know oh it's kind of funny though because i've heard like Originally, they wanted like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio to play the brothers at an early stage. Oh, goodness. There were people on the list to play Detective Smecker. One of them was, um, who was it? Bill Murray and a couple other people. And I'm like, man, this, this movie could ended up really weird. Yeah, so, like, even worse than it already is, because,
0: like, the only good things about it are the three cast members. But, like, outside of what you pointed out, and it's funny that you brought up this film, because I wrote about it maybe, like, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is that, uh, I think just on a fundamental filmmaking level, a lot of it's just very screwy. So, like, you know, you brought up the part where, um, or parts, rather, the idea that Willem Dafoe is saying all of, all of this in hindsight. And... A lot of that, it's it's great conceptually, but I think their approach to it results in a lot of misfires, so like fade-ins and outs from his recollections and what actually happens, which really kind of like kills the intensity of a scene where it's like, you know, if you look at like, I don't know, a Pulp Fiction or something like that, where it cuts from shot to shot, it's... Edgy and it's in your face. It's dynamic, but you know when you have fades, that kills the intensity. Which you know, if you're if you're showing like a bloodbath, you know it was a firefight. You kind of want it to be as intense as possible. So it's a lot of things that are just misunderstandings of the cinematic language as well, to boot. So it's unfortunate because you said it's problematic, but even then, a lot of the good ideas are bastardized, in my opinion, by just poor decisions.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that was my pick.
0: Alright, so uh, Rachel, do you have a similar experience where it was a film that's not particularly, well, no disrespect to the listeners who like this film, not particularly good? Or was it something else? Or?
1: Well, when you first suggested this episode, I thought you guys meant like childhood childhood, so when you were pretty young, and... True. When I was six years old, the movie Quest for Camelot came out. Oh. Yes, okay. and of course I was six, so I thought nothing beyond, <laughs> ooh, pretty princess, pretty colors, and man, I loved that movie. There was this kick-ass main character, and I wanted to be a knight. I think my mom even got me a sword, and I ran around with it and called it Excalibur, like a, a bubble sword, one that blew bubbles. And so I just really, that movie was quite dear to me because of this really awesome story and you know I didn't know any better and then once I saw it when I was a little older I was like wait a minute this is just a rip off of that whole 90s sort of faux girl power thing going on Yeah, and it's ha- it's a half fake version of much better movies the character development is meh there's a really talented cast but some of their casting choices are just weird and the jokes don't land there are a couple of good songs I will admit but the rest of the soundtrack's pretty forgettable just none of it really fit and there were much better movies instead that I think I could have glommed onto at the age of six, but Hey, what can you say for taste?
0: But like the quest for Camelot's also so befuddling because somehow as you, as you pointed out, it was ripping off like the Disney Renaissance, like the pro female protagonist animated stuff like Anastasia from its time. But the one thing it did right, it did stupidly right, which was have an original song that would stay on the radio and stay in people's minds for the rest of their lives. This thing generated yeah, the prayer. Like what in the hell? And if you watch it in context, it's like the silliest thing. Like that's like having I don't know the three tenors trying to score like I don't know um, Titan AE. Like it just like it's just so terrible as a matchup, and yet. It became one of the biggest ballads of the '90s. To this day, it's still everyone
1: and their mother covered it. <laughs> I know,
0: like it's the strangest thing. I think it got nominated for an Oscar. You said, right? I, mean, I think it, I think it did get nominated for an Oscar.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it did. And yet, this whole movie was so like atrocious. Otherwise,
0: I know it's almost like they made it just for this song to do well. It's Celine Dion, and it's not Josh Groban who, who originally Andrew did Benchelli it. It's... did. A f- That's part who it, of it is. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, this the cast.
1: You had like Gary Oldman. You had Carrie Elwes. You had all these people, and it just didn't go anywhere.
0: Oh, and the animation's not that great. It just looks really bad and nonsensical. Monkey. And this this the song just in the middle of it when they're like, "Oh my god!" Just like you know, like the bridge version of the film. It's just so silly. James, have have you seen this uh, paradoxical film?
2: I've seen it, and I know I've seen it. I just do not remember it. How can you? <laughs> Exactly. It, it was that bad. I just don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's, oh, goodness. Well, that said, I still uh, think I
1: would have been an awesome Knight of the Round Table. So.
0: <laughs> well, fair enough. I, 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 uh, oh, yeah, Quest for Camelot. Um, unfortunately, I don't know if my pick is something that everyone has seen, like Quest for Camelot. But it's the one that was like the truest to me when I thought about this. When I pitched the idea to you guys, for the listeners at home, I was thinking of something like Edward Scissorhands or Sin City, which were like two of my all-time favorite films as a teenager, where I still like them to varying degrees now, but it's just not the same. Because like I noticed the plot holes in Edward Scissorhands or I noticed the the shallowness of, of Sin City. But the one that rings the truest to me, And this is such a weird one because I don't even know if you guys have seen this or even heard of this. And I think you're lucky for it. It's similarly dude bro-y to, you know, in the way that uh, Boondock Saints is. It's this David Ayer film called Harsh Times with Christian Bale and Freddie Rodriguez and Eva Longoria from like
2: 2005 that I saw as a teenager. Does any of that ring a bell?
1: No, it does not, unfortunately.
2: No, anytime I think of David Iyer I just think of him as the writer of training day. Oh yeah. Well that yeah. That's like the only thing. That's like that at end of watch, that's it.
0: Just like close the doors there. Like everything else is like, you know, whatever, but oh uh, harsh times. How do I even explain this? It's basically just kind of like a day in the life of these of these uh Oh, God. Like, I, I uh, so sorry, just give me a second. I have to look this up because I honestly don't even remember what this is, what this is about. <laughs> I remember parts of it. That's why. Uh Yeah, so it's these two guys growing up in this, uh, this crime-ridden part of Los Angeles. And again, it's just like a a day in their life. But, you know, when I was a teenager, I was like, you know, it's just so edgy. And it's like, oh my God, I love Christian Bale because I just discovered him through, you know, like American Psycho and The Machinist. And I think it was around the time of The Dark Knight. I think I discovered the movie after The Dark, not The Dark Knight, um, Batman Begins. And, you know, it was just, this exciting time that I was discovering this guy and, you know, Eva Longoria was a desperate housewife at that time still. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to watch this and, you know, I like training day and it's kind of just all of these shenanigans kind of going on. It's like it's supposed to be like these deep philosophies about what it's like to be a part of this, this tough part of the, you know, like the crime in streets and all of that, you know, the lengths that, that some of these guys would do, uh, I like there are parts that are that are in my head that I don't want to say on the air because they're they're not necessarily like the friendliest things to listen to. Like the ways that Christian Bale tries to pass a drug test, I don't want to go further. Or like, uh, oh, the guy from Six Feet Under, uh, Freddie Rodriguez, his character, he's trying to pass a job interview, I think, and he, I something like this, and he tries to like pretend to his wife that he got the job, or he's like applying for a job or something, but then. She, she catches him that he didn't. You know, looking back, it's just like, I can't even explain this movie because it's it's, it's a bunch of crap. <laughs> like, it's just like nothing happens. Like, um, but when I saw it as a teenager, it was like, wow, this is so dark. Like I, I'm getting this, this street philosophy, but then you discover better movies. And it's like, uh, when I watched this a second time, and it's funny because I was actually, um, on residence in, uh, in university. And it was around the time that I decided I want to study film. I was a non-major and I was like watching all sorts of new stuff, like the seven seal kind um, of hearts coronets. Like this was all like on my own doing, just like discovering this, the stuff that I've seen that was a claim. And I remember revisiting this one in particular, and I don't even think I could finish it. I was like, what in the hell? It's almost like, um, it's almost like you were high And then you ate something and it tastes like the greatest thing on earth. And then like the day afterwards, you were like, I don't understand what I had. I don't understand why I like this at all. (laughs) Like there's like, there's like nothing there. It's honestly one of the most mundane films I've, I think I've ever seen. So the fact that I liked it at all, I don't get it. So um, you guys haven't seen it. Don't see it. (laughs) It's it's, it's what I'm saying. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. (laughs) But uh, to flip things around a little bit, let's get more optimistic. So what are the films that we didn't really like or care for or understand, but now we love them. James, what is your pick since we went first with you? We're gonna go first with you again?
2: Well, what I have isn't a film that I didn't necessarily dislike. It's a film that I liked, but it took getting older to realize the genius of it, and that's Wes Craven's Scream.
1: Oh yeah. Tell us more.
2: You know, I think when I first saw it, it was probably maybe a few years after it came out. I was really young when I saw it, which was weird because I was pretty much allowed to watch anything as a kid, which I find strange because most people I know weren't. But it's amazing how this film does for horror movies what Chinatown did for the noir film. But it kind of sidesteps it to where it perfectly satires, but also reinvents the slasher genre in a way that nobody saw coming. I mean, even from the marketing perspective, to the film release like you know you see the marketing it's it's got a marquee cast you know it's got drew barrymore it's got david arquette it's got courtney cox courtney cox exactly and then you watch the movie and in the first five first five minutes drew barrymore dies and it's like wait this is she's supposed to be the star of the movie what do you mean and then it also takes the really interesting meta film approach with brandy meeks because he's you know the horror movie guy and he's pointing out all the tropes as the story is going along And then I got to say, in retrospect, that is a really interesting twist when you find out Billy Loomis is actually the killer, but his friend Stu helped him. And I just vividly remember, and I will always remember this, the line that Stu says after because, you know, Billy obviously, you know, has his whole story about, you know, his parents divorced and like the whole thing. And then, you know, in relation to Cindy's family. And then they get to stew. They're like, well, why did you do this? And he basically is just like peer pressure. And that is the most chilling thing in the world because that's how teenagers act.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's how, you know, some of these real life, like real life crimes like this, they end up like that. Someone does something and their friend's like, well, they just they wanted me to do it. So I did it. But yeah, it's just really interesting, especially given Wes Craven's history in horror. I don't think really I would have never expected him to make fun of the thing that he pretty much came up with.
0: I think it's just so interesting that somebody like Wes Craven, as you said, you know, was one of the best at making the slasher genre. But then, you see, this This to me is what really separates good directors and fantastic directors. There are people who could have made Nightmare on Elm Street or similar slasher films in that vein. But to make a scream after the fact knows that you understand how it works on a fundamental narrative level so the deconstruction of the slasher genre will still be very good and actually shocking and still entertaining like that to me is what i kind of realized i was like oh god like this guy's actually like when when people call him the, the, the master of the genre i can see why because it's not even just doing it well it's destroying it and rebuilding it to make it even better than it was in a comedic,
2: effective way, and also coming up with the most iconic Halloween costume ever. Oh yeah, I, I bought one of
0: those. The masks, ghost face mask. Say, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, well, uh, it, it's funny because like I usually associate Ghostface with with the Wu Tang Clan now, but you know, still same thing. Uh, Rachel, have you seen this film? No, I haven't. Is this the type of stuff that like you'd be into, or is like you know slasher?
1: I think so. I didn't really grow any appreciation for horror until I took a class on it at one point, and I saw a whole new side of it. So. I think that would be a good thing.
2: Yes. Oh, you'll definitely have to check out Scream.
0: Scream is fantastic because it's both great at what it does, but also great at making fun of what it does. It's almost to me like a Pennatella routine where they spoil a magic trick, but then they reinvent it and do it better and don't tell you how it's done. So in in a way, they, they take jobs away from other magicians. And then they hit them again by being better than them whilst destroying all of their magic tricks. So it's like, this is how a great separate, yeah, it's like, this is how you separate somebody, you know, in half of the box. And now we did it while revealing the tricks. How do we do it? I don't know. That, that had to be a scream where it's like, this is what a, a slasher film is. We just ruined it for you. But now we've made it better. And now it's untouchable. So it really is one of the great slasher films, even though it like destroys a lot of its competition. Um, Rachel, what is your pick for those?
1: Okay, well, I grew up with parents who were very determined that I should see all the classics, so they would bring out movies from when they were young, and the result was I saw a lot of movies that weren't, I wouldn't say mature in terms of mature content, but they were simply aimed way above a kid's head, so I had no idea what was going on half the time. And so, one of my mom's favorites was The Way We Were. Have either of you seen this?
0: I haven't. Oh, why does that sound familiar?
1: So it's from 73. It's got Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. And they're this couple who are mismatched. And well, I mean, they, f- they have mad chemistry, but they just have completely different outlooks on life. And so they get together, they get married, and then they fall apart, even though neither of them were particularly bad people. It just kind of happened. And there's this whole side plot with the blacklist, of the Hollywood blacklist of the 50s. And so naturally, when I was 10 or so and I was watching and I was thinking, oh, God, why don't they just stay together? They look cute together. Like, why don't they just throw all that aside? And, you know, I just had no clue about the larger context. And then when I watched it, I was like, oh, I get why this why this movie works now. Of course, they can't stay together just because they're perfect for each other on the surface. And of course, the Hollywood blacklist is going to ruin both their lives. And I just... It took me a while to grow into that movie. It's still
0: treacly as hell, of course. Sorry, Mom.
1: Um, Andreas, have you seen it?
0: No, unfortunately not. Um, I'm a very big Redford fan, so it's one of those things where, oddly enough, despite his stature, I still think he's underrated, so I feel like I owe it to myself to watch all of his like his classics. So th- this will definitely be on the list. Yeah, he
1: and Streisand are very good
0: in it. Yeah, I, oddly enough, I haven't seen enough mm-hmm. Streisand either. Like, It's not like I'm purposely putting her off, but like I haven't seen Funny Girl. I haven't seen Yentl. So.
1: Oh man, you're missing out.
0: I know, and like Prince of Tides. So, like, there's all of these films that I'm missing out on. It's all on purpose, I swear. Who directed it The Way We Were?
1: Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Um, I cannot remember right now.
0: <laughs> I shall look it up. Oh no, not the song. Oh, okay, 1973 film. Oh, yeah, the
1: song was more popular than the movie, it won the Oscar.
0: Oh, Sidney Pollack. That would make sense. Pollack, you know. that was it. Yeah the, yeah, the 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 Tootsie guy. Okay, that would make sense.
1: Yeah, thematically, hmm. that's very on brand for him.
0: Oh yeah, exactly. Like you know, they shoot horses, don't they? You know, this film. Um, that uh, oh, out of Africa. So yeah, that that would be very fitting. So I'm gonna mm-hmm. have to check this out. I think. Thanks for the recommendation, uh, James. What about you? You gonna you gonna check out some Robert Redford?
2: Probably at some point. It's on my list of things that I need to watch along with a million different other things. I mean, this show alone gives me an entire <laughs> list of things I need to check out from all the suggestions you guys make. Oh, well, I, oh, I
1: know we'll never reach the end.
2: Exactly. Well, I th- yeah,
0: I think that goes without saying for all of us. I think that's why it's, it's so fantastic. And hence why we do the cinematic smorgasbord every month now. So for my film, I went a little bit in line with what you were doing with your other film, Rachel, where, it, you know, stuff that you grew up on as a kid, so mm-hmm. I remember this particular film when I was a kid. And I remember, because I, I wasn't even alive when it first came out, I don't think. Uh, no, I certainly wasn't. And this was around the time that all of these films, especially to compete against Disney, they were being re-released on VHS, where it's like, now we're going to show you know this movie and that movie, The Land Before Time, and and all of this. But there was one that I remember, I think my dad, Dad bought it for my sisters and I, and I just didn't get it. But, you know, when I got older, I realized that The Secret of Nim is a masterpiece of animation. Like,
1: it is. It really is. I did
0: not get that film as a kid. I thought it was boring. I liked the Don DeLuise Crow, which, you know, Don DeLuise and Don Don Bluth were like basically like best friends uh, in every single way with all of these movies. But, uh, I didn't get it as a kid. Like, I was, I didn't even think it was dark. I just thought it was boring. And then when I watched it again as a late teenager, I said, oh my God, what is wrong with me? This is one of the best. Like, that episode we did the other day where we did animated films that aren't Disney, Pixar, Ghibli, or DreamWorks. This would have been, if we continued that list and made like a top five of those, this would be on there. Like, I think The Secret of Nim. It's so gorgeously animated. I think it's meta commentary on like you know, like the, the, the human experience, especially from an outsider perspective, that of a rodent, like uh, what we're doing to this world type of thing. And it's not overly preachy either, but it's still obviously about the the after effects of, of civilization and how it affects you know, um, forest life and, and and other types of of living organisms and you know the 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 mrs Brisby story um, how she's trying to be like a good mom um, it's just so heart wrenching i adore the secret of nim and i think it's a, i think it's an incredible film
2: it really is i don't think i've seen it
0: uh the the one with the the, the little mice i know and, what you're talking uh, about but mrs.
2: i, I don't remember seeing it
0: <laughs> oh it's it, it's very worthwhile it's this might sound negative it's the only don bluth related film that i will endorse a thousand times like I like the Land Before Time. I think American Tail is okay. I don't love everything else that he does. I think he's done a lot of bad stuff, but this one I think is is it's his opus, and I think it's uh, if you're into like 80s animation, it's it's easily one of the greats. I think it it might actually be my favorite 80s animated film outside of like maybe A Cure or something. So
2: A cure is amazing, definitely.
0: Oh yeah, but luckily I didn't see that as a kid because if I did, I I think I. I think it'd be very different. <laughs> oh yeah, that's for all sure. Saw that as a kid, um, but uh, enough about that type of nostalgia stuff. It is time for our weekly recommendations. So we might as well go in the same order. James, what is your weekly recommendation and why?
2: You know, it's funny. One of the choices I was thinking it was actually Akira, and then you said it. I was like, hmm. You know what? I'm not gonna go <laughs> oh, with bad. that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll have to talk. We'll have to talk about Oops. that another time. But well, I decided to go with. Christopher Nolan's following. Okay. His, his yes. debut. Mainly because it's a super cheap, low budget film. So it's right in my lane. I think it was made for like $6,000 American or something like that. Or at least the equivalent because you know, he made something it overseas, like obviously. But I like it just because it's uh, it's the first little bit that you see of the potential that he brings to the neo-noir thing. You know, it's also short, it's very compact, and it's just a very smartly written movie. You know, it is kind of weird because it falls along with a lot of his other movies where there's this weird time thing because it's cut into three sections and then kind of interleaved with each other. So some scenes don't necessarily seem like they go in order, but it's very Nolan ish in that regard. But yeah, I don't know. It's when I first watched it, it was, you know, when I was just tearing through whatever movies I could get through probably like a decade ago or something like that. I don't even remember when I first watched it, but I think I picked it up because I had watched Memento and I loved Memento. And then I found out about that movie and I was like, Oh, I'll pick this up. Cause I think I bought it at a used video store or something like that. And I watched it and I was just floored at how good it was, especially for something that was just, you know, shot on weekends over like a year period with a small crew. And it also has a fun twist at the end, which is, you know, it all ties together and it's just like, Oh wow. Wow. But yeah, I don't know. I recommend it to anybody who likes low-budget film or anybody who likes kind of like noirish type films. Or if you're a fan of Christopher Nolan, you got to watch it because, you know, it's Christopher Nolan.
0: Fantastic. I think that's a great recommendation. I only saw it for the first time last year, and I agree with your sentiments. Uh, Rachel, what is your weekly re- recommendation?
1: Um, So mine's another, oddly enough, another rom-com from the 70s. Well, romantic drama, let's say. And it's called Same Time Next Year, and it's from 1978, based on a play, very obviously based on a play, and um, it stars Alan Alda and Ellen Burstyn as a couple, and they meet one day totally by chance. They have other lives. They are both married, but they fall madly in love with each other, and they just can't keep away from each other. So they decide every year they're going to meet for a weekend and have their same time next year, and they spend this weekend together, and it follows them over about 20 years of their lives. Um, It wouldn't work without two great performances, which the movie has. And it's just a really good examination of how people change
0: over time. I usually say I need to check that out. But that one especially, that sounds incredible. The cast, the premise, that sounds amazing. Okay, that's definitely...
1: It's an interesting movie. I, I think you'd enjoy
0: oh. it. Oh, Yes, absolutely. I feel like I feel like that's that's going to be our catchphrase. I need to check that out. <laughs> um, so yeah, I need to check that out now. Hopefully, you guys say the same thing about this weird ass movie I'm about to recommend. This one's been on my mind because I brought it up to my girlfriend the other day, and she's like, "What in the hell?" Uh, so, um, have you ever tried explaining uh, Leo Carax's Holy Motors to anyone? Because that that's not an easy thing, but I will try and explain it. So it's it's uh, it's an art house film from 2012. Um, it stars Denny Levant, who I think is one of the all time greatest song and dancemen of our time in a very very unorthodox way. I just am fascinated whenever he's on screen, and. Oh, how do I even explain this? It's like a very abstract perspective of what an actor does or what movies can do. So it's not necessarily an actor in performances. It's a guy who lives different lives. So like, it's like a science fiction romance type thing. He has like this musical piece where like the, the, the alleyway or subway. I don't remember what it is that erupts. into song. Um, it, it has, like, the weirdest cast where it's, like, um, uh, Eva Mendes, who doesn't speak throughout the entire film, as, like, this type of, like, a, a mythical goddess almost. And uh, Kylie, Kylie Minogue's in it as well, um, singing a swan song. It's a very, very peculiar experience. But at the same time, it's a complete deconstruction of cinema. And I think it's um, the finest thing that Leo and Danny Levan have, have done because they've worked together before in films like Movae Sang. So um, I think it is fantastic art house. And if you're into art house and metaphysical cinema, this is one to watch. Sounds interesting you know what to say i'll have to check that out absolutely and speaking of checking out that's it for the k cut so hope you like all of these recommendations avoid the films that we kind of you know didn't give the most glowing results to and check out the rest so that was the k cut and now we are going into the l cut